Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is the solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. So I was just explaining to uh, today's guest that we are on the other side now of celebrating 10 years in this podcast. So um, I am looking forward to the next 10 years. Um, We'll still be doing podcasts, I'm sure. So this has been such a pleasure and um, I've, I've received a number of emails where people said, I got used to hearing the show every day on my drive home. It's like, no, 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 don't get any ideas. We're going to go back to once a week, not once a day. Uh, I appreciate the sentiment, but I'm, I'm really glad to be here with you again as usual. And as usual, I have somebody who is a very special guest um, who I read an article um, in, and I know some of you may remember that I subscribed to a magazine called uh, Fast Company, and it was a great article, very short. Um, again, I recommend it to anyone um, who likes to follow um, leadership advice and, and just effective uh, professional advice. Some great things have come out of that. And so today's guest is the founder of the Mentora uh, Institute and is one of my colleagues um, at uh, Columbia University. He's at uh, the business school, actually, and an award-winning professor. Um, And I just want to uh, introduce you and welcome uh, Professor uh, Hitendra Wadwa. Welcome, Hitendra. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here with you and our listeners. Yes, yes. And so I'm, I, because there's so many things I want to talk to you about, I'm just going to jump right in and, and try to kick this off and get started. So as I mentioned, so I'm, I'm reading through uh, my, my magazine, and I came across your article that was just, I'm telling you, one of the best reads I've had this, this year in the magazine. And, and it, was, it, it, it is rated as a four-minute read. And so for those of you um, who may not subscribe, it's available online, Fast Company. But the title of this article is uh, Five Negative Mindsets That Can Wreck Your Judgment. Now, uh, many of you know that I am a professor in the Department of Organization and Leadership, and I have a lot of students and former students that are in leadership roles um, that a lot of my guests actually have written and studied areas that will actually improve if they listen to what's being shared, uh, improve their effectiveness as, um, as leaders. And this one is no exception that um, talking about judgment. And, and so what fascinated me so much, and I'll start with uh, it's something that I could really identify with, where you told the story about the student who you noticed was a little uh, uh, disengaged. And, and so immediately you started with, um, you know, kind of brainstorming about why the student might be yeah. disengaged. And, and I'm going to tell yeah. you, um, you know, as I said, it, it took me down a familiar road that I've been on as a professor, and it took me 
years of being a professor and um, and even in my role as a director of a program to understand that it's not always about you. And, and mm-hmm. some of the problems we come into uh, having personally and professionally is not just about what someone has done or said. It is how you've received yeah. what they've done or said. And I just wish that I had gotten yeah. that message so, so much earlier in my career that it would have <laughs> saved me a lot of missteps, a lot of heartache and headache. Um, and so you said you have these uh, these um, these these thoughts about it. But first, tell me a little bit about before we get into the article. I do want to know a little bit about your institute um, and you know the classes you teach at Columbia. Yeah, I came from a more traditional business background. Um, you know, having done my PhD in business, I had gone and worked in consulting, management consulting, then in Silicon Valley, do a startup, then came to teach at Columbia as a professor of practice, initially teaching classes in marketing and strategy. But I was still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grew up. And um, I think Columbia gave me the creative space and room for experimentation that I'm super grateful for. That led 15 years ago for me to develop more clarity and conviction about my life mm-hmm. purpose and path, which is the study of human potential, you know, like mm-hmm. you in, in many regards and what you do. And um, you're doing it in teacher's college. I'm doing it at the business school. Uh, but I was very invested in drawn. You know, I, I had always in my life been drawn to the idea of like, what is, what is my full potential? What is the greatest and best version of me that I could be? Um, but I realized that actually that personal quest was also in some ways something I wanted to make my professional quest. And so I, mm-hmm. I started a class at the business school called Personal Leadership and Success. Uh, you know, how do we define success? How do we pursue success? Yes. And also, um, you know, how do we lead our own selves before we even think about leading others? And, uh, and then, yes, the institute that um, you referred to, I founded 11 years ago with the aspiration to want to bring some of the lessons and research and teaching that I've been doing at the business school more to organizations uh, broadly in, in the world mm-hmm. beyond Columbia. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's what we do at the Institute is really advance the craft of leadership more through a 21st century lens rather than the practices, you know, that we have inherited from the 20th century, uh, integrating science, the latest kind of science of human nature, mm-hmm. but also connecting with timeless, timeless principles, you know, from, spiritual and, um, you know, other truth-seeking paths, you know, in, in the past. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I was fascinated by your, one of the uh, items in your uh, bio said that you your personal mission is to discover, codify, and teach the laws of success in life and leadership. I thought that was a great, great phrase. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I mean, we live at a time when, there is so much of a hunger, right, in everyone from a very young age to want to be free, be untethered, be themselves, mm-hmm. be, mm-hmm. you know, uh, comfortable and challenging the, you know, uh, hierarchy and authorities and traditions of the past, right? And yet at the same time, perhaps one lesson, and I, you know, want to test this with you, Brian, to see what you think of it, but one lesson that I feel like we are yet not fully assimilating is that, you know, we can seek to be as free as we want, but at the end of the day, there are certain laws 
just yeah. like there are laws of you know na- nature, there are laws of human nature, and we have right. to kind of like figure those out and live in harmony with those laws, because otherwise we'll end up wrecking our health, you know, wrecking our happiness or our harmony in relationships with others or something. No, I, so I that's, agree. Uh, what I'm I agree. No, no, I, I agree. And what's what's uh, fascinating? I've talked to my colleagues um, all across the university and. Um, we are at what may be an inflection point in human history, Um, certainly American history, um, because there are a lot of people that are saying that, well, you know, we've reached a point where with um, technology being the way it is, that things need to shift now. And that shift is causing causing quite a bit of tension, I think, you know, and, and so while there may be, you know, there are some people that are saying that there, there shouldn't be any rules, but I think what they're actually saying um, is in most cases is that maybe we need to reformulate some of the rules, um, but that there, there are standards and, and, and norms, so to speak, is that everything can't be a free for all. And I think that's, we're in the process of kind of renorming, and that's why it so much feels in business, and I'm sure you hear a lot of this in the business school, so much feels uncomfortable because we're in the process of redefining some of those laws. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and um, I think the reason it feels uncomfortable is because we, um, you know, we – we assume that happiness lies in a certain steady state and a certain mm-hmm. predictability and a certainty, you know, mm-hmm. but if we were to shift and open ourselves up to the idea that life's an adventure and life will have sudden unexpected twists and turns and yeah. new puzzles that will show up. And the whole purpose of waking up every day is to figure out, okay, what is the puzzle life is going to throw in front of me today that I'm being invited to solve? Then perhaps we can, lean into this moment of change. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and as I said, I started out talking about your advice um, and pointing out um, and this, these five negative mindsets that uh, you, you, you have identified and um, I'd like to share them and maybe we can just kind of talk about them each. And I think we, we have enough time to at least, scratch the surface. You said, so these are five, sure. um, five um, negative mindsets that can wreck your judgment. One, you identify as mind reading. Uh, the next, mental fil- filtering, um, followed by labeling, blame, and finally, all or nothing thinking. So let's talk about mind reading. So, um, th- you know, this is something that I think we've all done at one point or another, um, is that something happens, and I, I often have to correct whether it's my students or my children, same thing, is that they jump up the inference ladder, so to speak. Um, yeah. and, and they say things like, well, since I didn't get a response, that must mean X. And I go, no, doesn't, it might mean that, that's true, but it doesn't automatically equate to that. So tell me a little more about what you think about mind reading. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what you said. Mind reading is that we tend to jump to conclusions and assume that the other individual, 
that we are interacting with. It could be a stranger who's like serving us, you know, in uh, a fast food, you know, restaurant, or it could be a brother or a sister or a friend or a colleague at work. We just assume that we know what they're thinking or we know mm-hmm. what their intentions are or we know how they're feeling. And it's, it's, um, you know, it's a negative mindset in the sense that it can, it can wreck your judgment from time to time because often those assumptions are wrong and we just haven't had the pause and the awareness and the curiosity to really ask, mm-hmm. like, you know, what led you to say this? Or I'm noticing I'm not hearing from you. Tell me what's going on, you know, in your heart. Mm-hmm. Tell me what's going on in your mind. Or we don't create a safe enough space to recognize that their first initial response to us is not necessarily the most candid response, mm-hmm. right? Because we haven't truly listened to the stirrings of their soul within. Um, and so um, today it's getting even more pernicious, you know, this, this um, uh, like a distortion of thinking because we live in a world with remote relationships and communication formats, texting, emailing, et cetera where you cannot even see the facial expression sometimes on the you know, other person That's or true. hear the tone of the voice, right? And so some of that, like, glimpsing of, like, you know, their, their inner life, we usually can tease out from, from tone and facial expressions. We, we don't get to see it when, you know, when all we see is a cryptic text from them or an email from them, which makes mental, this, this, this distortion, this, this negative mindset of, of mind reading even, even more, you know, just the unconsciously commonplace. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then the next one that I'm really interested to hear more about, too, is you mentioned mental filtering. What's that about? Mental filtering is where you bring a certain orientation to the way you look at, you know, life and the world and your experience in it. And so, for instance, you and me being educators, you know, we both, I'm sure, faced moments where, we get a really, you know, maybe decent score, you know, on a class that we've taught. And yet there are a few, like, you know, very, very vocal critics, you know, who have written in their feedback, yes. you know, pretty poor yes, you know, yes. kind of, you know, commentary about, about how they felt the course landed on them or the professor. And what happens is that let's say those three critics out of, like, let's say a class of 45, somehow their words just, like, make our heart bleed much more than the other ones make us, make us happy. And, and so mm-hmm. we tend to kind of walk out with this great sense of burden in our hearts about like how we've really done a disservice or we're not competent or, or we just didn't teach a good class because we filtered out, you know, the other 42 and just focus in on these three, right? And so when you go to a meeting and you feel like, oh, it's a terrible meeting because you saw one or two people, they're quite disengaged or, you know, offering certain pushback or criticism while there might have been six other people in the meeting who didn't have that. Or we look mm-hmm. at like one or two aspects of how life in the city is, uh, you know, really, you know, painful or annoying and we forget the other 17 things, which makes us really, you know, feel yes. very grateful and happy for being yes. in the city. We really focus on them or in a relationship, you know, or, or just in life in general or a job or whatever it is, right? So mental filtering is where you orient your mind towards just like a certain set of things. And it could be mm-hmm. the opposite. You know, in some cases, people, mm-hmm. people have mental filtering that is of a more delusionary positive kind, right? Like, for instance, uh-huh. I might feel like, oh, 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 you know, these, these, these direct reports of mine, they're smiling when I enter the room. They, they love me, you know, and, and I uh-huh. filter out uh-huh. like all, all of the other like 
facial expressions they show from time to time of tension or pause or skepticism or disengagement, but I just you know, you know, remember their smiles, right? And then I become very complacent as a manager because I was over-optimistic about what I was seeing in them. So either pessimism or over-optimism, you know, these are the kinds of things that then end up happening when we are not seeing reality in a much more fully unfiltered light, but we are mm-hmm. filtering. Yes, yes. Okay, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. And then, now this is another one that I'm familiar with, um, that, um, you know, that students, I, I've, I've encountered more, mostly, um, but yeah. also um, sometimes when there are people that I'm coaching or otherwise, that um, they label, they, they place a label on themselves or others or, or even situations. So tell me a little bit about labels. Oh, yeah. Yeah, labeling is a um, uh, in some ways, if we can master this, you know, mindset, then we will liberate ourselves from so much just uh, uh, unnecessary, you know, emotionalism in life. Uh, because what labeling, you know, does is it ends up making us assign certain descriptors, certain labels, certain adjectives, you know, certain um, very kind of, you know, energy draining kinds of ways to think about people or situations or things like, for example, using the word like I'm disgusted, you know, or uh-huh. this is terrible, or this person is an idiot, or I was such a fool to do this, or like, you know, this person has completely betrayed me, you know, uh, these words like betrayal, you know, an idiot, uh, you know, disgusted, they tend to invoke in our brains a set of associations based on past experiences that are obviously not very uplifting, you know, not very encouraging, trust building, you know, happiness generating. And often there is a lot of exaggeration in these words, you know, to say that you're a fool because you ended up like stumbling in a, you know, public speaking moment and, you know, didn't really recollect the next thought that you had to share. Really? Is that your definition of a fool? Well, if that's the case, then I mean, there are so many well-known, established you know, leaders out there who have stumbled in the same way as you, and all of them are fools. Um, mm-hmm. And so suddenly you realize how exaggerated that kind of language is and how yeah. it just ends up um, limiting us, you know, from seeing the larger possibilities and turning that relationship around in moving on from that little stumble and, and in recognizing that while this person has not necessarily disgusted, you know, they've been disgusting, but they've been disappointing. And yes. yet they have certain good qualities in them, uh, you know, by not extremizing, you know, our experience of the world or of people or of ourselves, we mm-hmm. can open ourselves more, you know, for yeah. our growth, possibility, connection, redemption. Yes, no, that that makes a lot of sense, and and I think we witness that. And I don't know, maybe it's because we, um, you know, th- w- with social media, I think it has become yeah. even most you know like these one, and I and I won't put it all on social media, but even even on television with the pundits and others, you know, a lot of it we, we're used to for lack of better words, clickbait, um, but the, you know, these want these snippets, right. That we yeah. a lot of times yeah. we talk in terms of extremes too, though, um, that, and I know that's another one down the road, but, but like this strong language, um, I've had to yeah. often, you know, I had situation where, um, 
and especially in the training of leaders, what I try to do is to get my leaders to stop behaving um, merely as followers. Like, I mean, it's, it's good to have a follower mindset so that you understand what people are, are experiencing from you as a leader. It's like what I, you want to put yourself in their, in their shoes. Um, however, you have to, you know, stand on, um, on something to see yeah. over the crowd, right? So you, you're, we're, yeah. where do we go? You're the leader. Well, here, based on my collection of the information, this is the way we should go. Um, but what, yeah. what I noticed is that um, sometimes uh, people, especially, and and they are some of them are in training, but even with leaders, is that they get stuck wanting to categorize things as one thing or another. And that's what I see you saying here. You're talking about like, you know, giving it a label. Um, Now I'll tell you an interesting um, uh, lesson that I I have given and it's not kind of like mind boggling or, or, or some, something new, a new concept is that I reintroduce, to my students, a very familiar um, vocabulary word, if you will, and I tell them that I want you to understand the meaning of the word paradox, and that sometimes, like, instead of us labeling something as one thing or another, is that it might be multiple things or many things at the same time, depending on where you are, right? And, And so... So to avoid labeling things, but in your case, you, I know what you're saying is that using dismissive words, um, but it's still categorizing and saying this is the picture of what this is when it might it might be that for some, but might not be the same for others. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think I think one way to kind of understand this mindset that you and I are just dissecting right now of labeling is just to take stewardship, take ownership over the vocabulary that you use, over the selection of words that you use. And don't let that be unconsciously scripted by the habits of the past. So for instance, I went through a major health hiccup about 10 years ago and I found a path to recovery from it, you know, with the grace of the universe. And that path involved me making some very serious changes to my mm-hmm. eating habits because I was kind of a little bit sort of like indiscriminate, you know, and mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. just kind of eating a little bit more indulgently at that time. And um, one thing I started to notice after having made some very mindful moves in my diet is like I suddenly became a lot more aware of the language of food, you know, that we have, you know, around. Yes, absolutely. um, You know, for example, there's this, there's this word, which is like, I have a craving for this, right? Ah, Just just examine the word craving. As soon as you use the word craving, you're kind of on your knees, you know, just like pleading with that Cinnabon, which is, hey, Cinnabon, just come to me, just come to me. I need to have you on my palate. Dancing uh-huh. with delight, right? <laughs> um, yeah, because yeah. there's absolutely no agency left in you if you use the word craving, because obviously you have no uh-huh. choice then. You know, you no have no right. capacity to overcome that, right? That's As opposed right. to, I have a fondness for a cinnamon, right? I mean, I have a fondness. Uh-huh. It's so much more, 
uh, freeing, right, in your capacity to say, yes, I have a fondness, but on the other hand, I can also live joyfully with or without it, <laughs> you know, yes, a craving, yes. right? And another, yes. another word is like, for example, let's grab lunch, you know, let's grab lunch. Grab lunch, I mean, yes. this is nectar for the body. The body is yes. the temple yes. through which you are going oh, to live powerful. out all your sensory and, you know, material and purposeful aspirations in life, right? Like even uh-huh. to hug your loved one, you need this body to be healthy. And food in this body is like nectar for the body. And so why would you want to grab you know, that, yeah, that yeah. blessing of food? You know? oh, and, and anyway, so here it is. You know, I'm just getting more suddenly mindful of words that I've used, you know, so constantly yes. in, in my life, you know. Yes. And so, oh, so that's, that's I think, powerful. what we're talking about here with labeling. It's just that, like, let's be real conscious of our language and how it kind of lock us into a certain set of assumptions and behavior, you know. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. That and I mean, we could go on with that for a while. So thank you for 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 expanding on that. So uh, we got two more I want to cover. Um, so the next yeah. one I'm fascinated by is blame, um, and and yeah. in the context of that course, you know, you 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 um, you engaged in a little bit of self blame. So tell us a little bit about um, what you thought about blame in this context. Yeah, so, I mean, in that course, as you mentioned, there was a student, she was very disengaged, and I kept feeling really pained about the fact that, like, she's not really fully invested. In fact, like, I used to come out of the class and do mental filtering and assume that, like, the class was a terrible class. Not because the other 42 people were not engaged, but because this one person I saw was super disengaged, and somehow I forget, forgot the other 42, you know, in that assessment mm-hmm. I made mm-hmm. for the class for mm-hmm. that day. And, and then, you know, the blame thing that you're talking about is that on Sundays I would come out of class and I would feel like, you know, Hitendra, you're such a loser because, like, you obviously haven't taught, a, you know, which was labeling, by the way, on myself, right? Because you obviously didn't teach a good class because if you had, then she wouldn't, she wouldn't have been disengaged. And then uh-huh. other times it was like, I would just blame her. I was like, you know, I, I think I taught a good class. Like, you know, but, like, she was so incorrigibly disengaged. You know, she just must be one of those kinds of, like, students who's just, like, here for the professional network and, you know, to get a good yeah, job and yeah. she just has no academic interest at all, you know? And, yeah, and so, yeah. uh, so, so that's the blame. That's the blame thing, which is that we just tend to, in situations where disappointing outcomes happen, we need to find a villain. You know, we need to find someone to blame. Uh, you know, sure. you, you, you rush with your family, you rush with your family to the airport and you still miss the flight, you know? I mean, you're so pissed off that you miss the flight that you take it out on your spouse, you know, or something that's like that. Right. Or on the... Yeah you know, on the flight, uh, you know, service crew at the, at the desk, you know, when they've shut the doors on you. Because you, you just need, need to blame someone or something. Yeah. And, and, of course, yeah. sometimes it's, it's for a situation that was, you know, beyond blame. I mean, maybe, you know, you have a typical commute to the airport at that hour or 15 minutes, and it ended up being an hour and a half because there was, like, an accident on the road or something that nobody yeah. could have projected, you know. So, so sometimes things are beyond just, like, beyond blame, and that's why it can be a crippling negative mindset. Yes, absolutely. And then lastly is all or nothing thinking. Um, uh, And this is also part of what I was talking about in terms of polarization. So uh, tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. Just to close a story out in a student, you know, for example, what I discovered, as I think the article will share, the article is an excerpt from my book, Inner Mastery, Outer Impact, Mm. uh, which is based on my class at Columbia and all all, all that I've learned on, on this topic of advancing us to our full potential and pursuing success. And, and, uh, and so in that story, what happened is that the student actually came to me at some point and, and shared that, like, you know, she was really struggling with the class, and not just with this class, but with other classes as well, because her father had passed away over the summer, and she was just feeling, you know, just a sense of meaninglessness to life mm-hmm. after the loss of somebody so, 
so beloved to her and and you know you can imagine what a fool has felt like you know with all that blame about like she is to blame i'm to blame and all that then fundamentally neither her or me it was you know the travails of life right with like the passing of her, her loved one and and so that was very humbling for me and uh, and then a, and a moment that I'd, i'd never forget with how i realized how much you know crippled we are just with these like negative like talk in our heads all the time right and so um, yeah so coming back to what you said though the all or nothing thing the black and white thinking all or nothing thinking that's a distortion where you tend to see things in very you know just either or just like you know you, you were citing that too the kind of extreme polarization that is going on right and yes, um, yes. you know um the the i i give you like a really powerful contrarian kind of like you know story to that um mm-hmm. because you typically think about like either you're a hero or you're a zero either i hate this person or love you know love this person yes. everything yes. about the political positions in my party are perfect everything about the political positions in the other party are you know completely you know terrible and wrong and nothing would be ever right about that that's that's all or nothing thinking that we can't see things in you know more nuanced you know shades you know as well right and and um, yes. you know so, so, so someone's a terrorist that they're obviously a completely terrible person in every every way and you know here's a powerful lesson i learned from a you know a habad jew uh, jewish um, you know a rabbi who was at columbia you know uh, in the wake of this uh, terrorism act you know in mumbai where they shot and killed a lot of uh, you know habad jews as well as uh, you know in, uh, in in hotels you know about 10 years ago i don't remember it on cnn you know it was like two three mm-hmm. day drama you know happening in mumbai uh, sometime after 9/11 and um so you know, a lot of people were very pained and here at columbia we were having candlelight vigil and this the jewish rabbi you know he comes there and he says imagine those those terrorists like they came you know from an, another land they took the you know this boat and you know very fearlessly they came all the way to india knowing that they were actually walking to their own own deaths and then they separated and coordinated and did these vile attacks you know to take these mm-hmm. lives very in a very evil and negative way and he mm. said like imagine if you and i if we had the same determination the same capacity to sacrifice our lives for good just like they did for evil and the same capacity to coordinate with each other and to kind of walk away you know from our own comfort yes. to do good in the world yes. there are so mm-hmm. many more of us than there are of them imagine what a beautiful world we could create you know yes. and it was like Absolutely. so remarkable that he was trying to inspire us by extracting a strength from those same perpetrators of the crime that had led to the death of people in his community you know so mm-hmm. that's an example of somebody who overcame the all or nothing black and white way of thinking about things to say hey you know what in everything including in the worst and most heinous of perpetrators of crimes you know there's a way to look at things in a way that you can actually lift your game up you can gain inspiration you can you can gain strength Absolutely. Wow. So powerful. So powerful. So I know we're, we're just about out of time, but I want to give you an opportunity to, um, to share. I know you have a new book that's out. And um, so tell us, because I'm sure there are people that want to, um, you know, go out and, and purchase the book and also um, any ways that they might follow you on social media or otherwise. So please uh, tell us about the book and then um, any ways that we might uh, follow you. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, I mean, this book has been a labor of love for me. It took me 15 years to kind of like ultimately get it, get it all kind of in the right place. I remember when I 
finally dotted the I, you know, and crossed the T and offered the final, you know, manuscript to my publisher. I went to my wife and said, I think I can die in peace now, <laughs> you know. And, and, uh, <laughs> so the book is called Inner Mastery, Outer Impact, How Your Five Core Energies Hold the Key to Success. And it's about how each of us, you know, has a hunger both for outer success and playing by the rules and also succeeding and thriving and getting adulation and rewards. But we also have this hunger for inner success, you know, wanting to be fulfilled, happy, living an authentic life, true to our own selves. And what the book does is shows us how ultimately this is one quest. These are not two different quests. You don't have to see them in tension with each other. But if you really tune into the laws of human nature and seek to follow them by activating your core, the truest, mm-hmm. you know, centermost part of who you are through these five energies of purpose, wisdom, growth, love, and self-realization that you can actually manifest both inner and outer success in your life. Uh, and uh, awesome. yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd be thrilled to have uh, any of our listeners uh, come and connect uh, with me um, beyond, beyond just the book and, and the spot, you know, podcast, great to cast with you. And for that, I would offer my website, uh, hitendra.com, just my first name, H-I-T-E-N-D-R-A.com. You can sign up for my newsletter and uh, would be delighted to be of more service to to any of us who are listening today. And I want to wish all of you all the best in your journeys towards in and out of success. Before I pass it back to you, Brian, thank you for having me today. Yes. It was um, well, so, much, so much fun to have this conversation. Yes, yes. And let me tell you, you've certainly added a lot to me today. And, um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, I'm just surrounded by um, such talented people at Columbia. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, if if you... Uh, subscribe to the notion of rankings. It's no no doubt why um, with professors yeah. like you, um, why the business school is such highly regarded uh, institution. So um, I'm just um, pleased to be in the midst and can learn from you. Um, it has been a pleasure speaking to you. And, and so I just want to thank you for such a great conversation. I know I learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners learned a lot too. Um, wishing you great success in the future for uh, your your book, and and I want people to take note. I you know it takes it takes a long time, so I've been working, so I don't feel so bad anymore. Um, hearing that it took you <laughs> fifteen years, so <laughs> I'm laboring uh, I'm laboring daily at uh, um, um, a manuscript that I just it's just gonna take time, and that's all. That's it's okay. Um, but I'm going to be yeah, listening yeah, yeah. for, you know, your work. And, and so um, maybe uh, sometime in the, in the fall, um, I'll shoot you an email and we'll go over to the faculty club and get a bite to eat. How about that? Perfect. Perfect. I'd be <laughs> delighted to do that. It's been real fun and all the best with your writing. I'm curious and looking forward to your book too. Thank you. And so until I see you go well, stay well. <laughs>